We so we just so appreciate all of you who join us and from a distance and are a part of this time of celebrating together. Reformation Sunday is an opportunity for us to stop for a moment and look back and realize a priceless truth that we have in Scripture about the gift of salvation and just to realize today in a few moments of Scripture confession today, before we go to our message, I'll be talking about groundbreaking faith. It just occurred to me that with all the, all the flurry of activity around all the things that are happening in our culture that, as Justin said, often just grieve us and leave us feeling somewhat, um, somewhat at a loss to know how to best impact the culture, I think that's a lot of why we have so many examples like we'll look at today of groundbreaking faith. But uh, also, there are these timeless pillars of truth. And we've, we're going to wrap up today on this fifth Sunday of October a time of just reading the Word of God aloud together in two different passages. And this first one is here to celebrate the fact that it was on, this, on tomorrow, the 31st of October, um, in the year 1517, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And though that was just the very, very early infancy, embryonic really, beginnings of what became called the Reformation, it was the signal event, the iconic moment that we look back to to recognize the reason that that, uh, that bold monk, who never thought he was literally going to be departing from the whole system of Catholicism, but at that point in time, that, that brave monk had found what every one of us can find in Scripture, the reality of a personal relationship with the true and living God, because for the first time it dawned upon him as if a light had illuminated his, his chapel that the righteousness that he'd so craved, the righteousness that he felt could never be a part of him, the deep, deep tormenting guilt that he felt in discovering how wretched his own sinfulness was, that Romans 1.17 said that this is the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And when I come to Reformation Sunday, I always think that our accent should be on that word living by faith. For what he discovered was this gift of grace in Jesus Christ not only sets us free from the prison of guilt of our past, it liberates us to be actively living by faith, growing in our walk with Christ, and that's what it's all about. So I'm going to ask you to stand again. We're going to read uh, this scripture and then our rejoicing scriptures for this month. Would you read aloud together with me Romans 5.1? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this month, we had applied to our hearts what is really the fruit of that justification by faith, and it is rejoicing. Rejoicing is a greater principle than just happiness because in the unhappy times, you can draw from that well of confidence in God's grace, and you literally can rejoice. And so we're going to do two sections of this, or two versions of it, and that is the command from the Lord, and then we're going to personalize it again as we did last week. This has kind of been a theme for our month, and I hope that it's one that launches us into a truly new discovery of the power of living by faith. Let's read this section together, this version. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you do. And then we personalize it together by saying it. We shall rejoice before the Lord our God in everything we do. Could you say that with me once again? We shall rejoice before the Lord our God in everything we do. Now I'm going to take a moment and pray for all of you. And I'm going to just ask God to give you at this very moment, a fresh burst of personally, in a, in a way that's real for you, a fresh burst of insight into 
the toughest situations you may be facing in the week ahead or the month ahead, and the confidence that you can go into each day of this coming week with a joyous knowledge that you can bring rejoicing into the toughest places of life. I know that sounds contradictory. It's the working of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that as we meet together today, we also realize that we walk together, and we walk together by faith, not only when we're physically together. So we thank you for the congregational vision to be a people of God, to express the love of Christ, to carry the good news of the gospel into every arena of our lives, spirit, soul, and body, our families, our community, our work, our connections in recreation and entertainment and any other area of life. Lord, that we carry that, uh, that inextinguishable flame of love for Christ and the assurance, yes, that we can bring rejoicing into the tough places. Not a surface or silly happiness, not just something that is contrived, not putting on a face, but drawing from the deep spring of your living water within us to say in this today, even before I see the answer my soul longs for, I choose to give you praise, God. I choose to bring rejoicing to the tough place. Rejoicing to the tough place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, and if, if you bear witness, just give the Lord a hallelujah. Would you do that? And then, amen. You may be seated. Well, the guys we're going to talk about today did exactly that. Sometimes when we think about this whole question of being a follower of Jesus, it's easy to forget how dynamic it is to trust him just as justification by faith empowers us to do. So a quick review in this series we completed last week looking at the potter's wheel, the shaping of the clay that forecasted to Jeremiah over 580 years before the birth of Jesus that there would come a new covenant, a newness, a new way, a new, a new a fulfillment of all that God had pro provided in the old covenant which all pointed to the fullness of the person of Jesus. And the more you look at it, the more you realize that even to this very day, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, all of us are yearning for the fresh application of what it means to truly be alive in Christ. Yes, like Luther learned in those embryonic moments of the Reformation, to live by faith, not just looking at the past and the forgiveness we needed, as wonderful as that is, but the ongoing, mighty, dynamic power of living by faith. So we concluded last week by seeing that in the book of Romans chapter 8, there's this full development of the wonderful work the Holy Spirit does within us. And so if you were here the last couple of weeks, you, you may remember that we talked about it being the interior work of the Holy Spirit that awakens you to his voice, and assures you of his love. That interior work, by the way, it says there, is proven or demonstrated by a, the simplest of prayers. The simple prayer spoken of in Romans 8.15 that says, we can cry to our Heavenly Father, Abba, just as tenderly and just as simply as a tiny child just learning to form his or her first words, and it spans the arc of our lives until our oldest and last words escape our lips. At every point in that journey, you can have the assurance of that interior work of the Holy Spirit. But also then, because of the newness of life in Christ, because there is that interior dynamic, God brings all of us, both the interior and the external impact of being a follower of Jesus. And they're not in contradiction with each other, they go together. So we flip over to a different emphasis 
when we think of the truth of living by faith, because the Bible describes the faith life as a venture that calls us out of ourselves. Now, when we look at the trouble around us in our world, when we look at the contradictions that are so rife in our culture, when we look at the outright downward spiral to depravity that is so vivid to us everywhere, we need the living impact of the example of Acts chapter 16, I'd like you to turn to that, of what it means to have groundbreaking faith. And I want to match up with that, a great statement the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where he said, the Holy Spirit is doing this interior work so that he may give you confidence that God's grace is with you in every act prompted by your faith. Now, very simply, when we leave here today, you can know for sure that you are equipped for groundbreaking faith. I heard a story about a ship in the South Seas that found a person stranded on an island there that had been there for several months. And as the ship got closer and they sent out a little uh, dinghy that would take some supplies to the person on the island, they threw a bundle of newspapers to the guy. And they said, here, read these newspapers from recent weeks, then decide if you still want to be rescued. <laughs> and in a way, we can identify with that old story because all of us are surrounded by such overwhelmingly bad news that it would be tempting to say, I'm not really sure I want to be rescued to go back to that world. But that's the mistake that reclusive and exclusive or isolating instinct that many Christians have is a serious error. And in fact, sometimes falsely, some believers assume that because the world is so dark, because there's so much wrong, because there's so much evil, the holy thing for a Christian to do is just stay in a kind of an isolated bubble and don't get anywhere near what's going on. That's the opposite of the instinct of the apostles. In Acts chapter 16, we see this amazing adventure that the apostles Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were on as they joined together in a team vision to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the continent of Europe. And really, what we're going to see in Acts 16 is the first foray of the good news of Jesus Christ from the continent of Turkey into the continent of Europe. And it's not only notable because of that element of the first, it's also notable because it shows us the dynamic work, the exterior part of what we saw in Romans was the interior. That is, when you're born again, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, when you're walking with God, when Christ is the Lord of your life, every day of your life, God will give you opportunities. They may seem small in some ways, but all of them are vital to take a step by faith. And that step by faith leads us to impact others for the glory of God. In the 16th chapter of Acts, just notice that this beginning at verse 12 gives us the event where they went to Philippi. And in Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, of Roman colony, Luke is writing, because he's part of the traveling band at this part of the narrative, Luke is writing, we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. 
And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, here in this account, Lydia is the first of three individuals, all having the same need that you and I have to be set free and brought into a living, dynamic relationship with Christ. And yet, they're all different in their response, and they're all touched by the impact of the groundbreaking faith of those who believed that the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel is liberating for every soul. In all of our lives, there are times when we can feel a bit alone. We need to have that sense of teamwork that also is a part of this wonderful example of groundbreaking faith. There's a sense in which all of us have an individual step of faith to take every day, but also the beauty of God's plan for the church is that with all of its inadequacies and with all of its limitations, God draws together a people who have a passion to let this living reality of the new life in Christ affect every aspect of our lives, our families, our finances, our attitudes, our relationships. And that shared vision is pictured in a, an interesting phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Philippians, which is the epistle he wrote to the very people that we're reading about in Acts 16. And Paul used this phrase in Philippians 1.27, that we urge you, because of this grace you've received, to endeavor together for the faith of the gospel as you realize that you stand together. And the, the expression that is in the original language there implies people wrapping their hands around a rope as in a contest that was common in those days in the Roman games of the tug of war. Wrapping your hands around that rope together. And this is exactly what we see in the apostles' foray into Europe. They've been over in the area of Lystra and Durba in the revisiting churches where the gospel had been received, where people had come to Christ. There even, in those parts of Galatia, Paul personally had suffered greatly. What is striking about his groundbreaking faith is that it would seem when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul that there were moments of persecution and opposition that would have stopped dead in their tracks someone of less resilience. And yet Paul always, when attention was drawn to his activity, he would always point back to the dynamic life of Christ within him and he would always say, look at what Christ has done in my life as a kind of a template or a prototype of what can happen in anyone's experience with God. To bring it down to home, maybe there's something that has knocked you off your feet. Maybe a situation that brought discouragement in your life. Maybe something recent that has given you pause and caused you to feel like you're spinning like in a whirlwind, or you are disoriented about what the next step should be. In all of those ways, and in the ways where sometimes our feelings are deeply hurt by things that happen that we find hard to swallow, Paul's living example of groundbreaking faith is incredible. They are in the area where he had already been stoned, and they're, they're planning to go west over to Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit stops them three different times. In Acts 16, verses 6 to 9, 6 to 11, Paul is stopped from one direction and is waiting to know what would be the next step. 
And one of the striking things about this whole panorama of events when they left Lystra and Derba and then finally ended up on a ship crossing the Aegean Sea and ending up in Philippi, it is the fact that they were, they moved by faith even when they weren't sure what lay ahead. And they moved by faith because they responded to the timely working of the Holy Spirit. After having been stopped by the Holy Spirit in some form of obstacle that isn't exactly described, and then another time where it says that the Spirit of Jesus did not permit us to go that way, and again, we don't know exactly the circumstances, how that became real, but then in the middle of the night, as they're asleep, God gives Paul in the night a dream of a man from this region called Macedonia in the European continent saying, come over and help us. And one of the really notable things about this teamwork, this groundbreaking teamwork in faith, is in that um, ninth verse of Acts 16, when the vision was given to Paul in the night, then look at the 10th verse of Acts 16, and notice the way that Luke records what happened. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God gives Paul this clear vision, all together coalescing with one purpose, this traveling band of men go in the direction of Macedonia, a region that none of them had ever seen before in their lives. And that, I think, gives us another way to think about why this groundbreaking faith is so relevant for our mission for Jesus, as this month we've really focused in a heartfelt way on how we can renew the vision of mission in all aspects of the life of this church body. So what we find is that their mission, crossing that Aegean Sea, landing in Macedonia, just a short distance to go inland to Philippi, but the road that they would take is that famous road called the Ignatian Way that was in this picture of the uh, modern uh, preserved example of that road, it sure doesn't look like a highway. <laughs> it just looks like an, an old rock path. And yet in those days, the earliest roads of the Romans, crude though they were, were opening up vast areas of territory for travel that had never been easily traversed before. And there on that Ignatian way, the Apostle Paul and his companions Silas and Timothy, and then Luke who had joined them at Troas, are now making their way to Philippi. Philippi was a city of, of great prominence in that time because it is where um, the murders of Cassius and Brutus, the murderers Cassius and Brutus had been, had been vanquished finally, and Caesar Augustus gave special favors to that whole region of in and around Philippi, building beautiful, gleaming marble structures for their municipal functions. And many of the most wealthy aristocracy from Rome founded a place of both retreat and of expanding their own influence. And here the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are making their way to that prayer meeting. Now, we saw in the text that uh, when they got there, that a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple, was a worshiper of God. She's the first of three individuals in this chapter that are impacted by their groundbreaking faith. And though they're very diverse, Lydia, the slave girl that was a fortune teller, and the jailer, all three of them are impacted in such a way as to make new life in Christ possible for them. And it really highlights, I think, for all of us how it is that 
God brings the good news of Jesus Christ into our lives in ways that we can receive. It's also a reminder that for us as a body of believers, there's no greater adventure than being involved in giving the good news of Jesus Christ to someone in our experience. So in the story of Lydia, one of the striking things about Lydia is that she is described as a dealer in purple, a dealer in purple cloth, but also the fact that she was a worshiper of God. Now that's really notable because we see a sign, we see evidence in the book of Acts of people who had come from a Gentile background. They had no uh, bloodline relationship with the Jewish people, and yet they saw the, the simple elegance and the, and the uplifting de- dignity of the truths of God's gift through Moses to the people of Israel that were expressed in the synagogues of the Jewish people. And many of them, as they were referred to in the book of Acts as God-fearers, were people with no background in, in the Jewish experience, and yet they, there was an, an awareness, almost like an invisible fragrance, of the meaning of Yahweh, of Yahweh's great plan for humanity, and they were drawn to it. There was an attraction to it. And many of them went further than just sort of dabbling at the edges. They, they would ask to be guests in the synagogues. And they were, long before the apostles came with the gospel, there was that movement there, again, that God was using to awaken and stir a hunger for the reality of a hope that could never be fulfilled until Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And this is why Lydia is referred to as a worshiper of God. But the fact that she was there and the fact that she could invite Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke into her home is a reflection of a, a kind of a prominence of this, of this very um, interesting woman. She actually becomes, it appears, to be the early and continual hostess of the first growth of the church at Philippi. Later, when Paul writes to the Philippian church and gives them those timeless words that he wrote from a prison cell, that let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and served. He modeled this principle of groundbreaking faith himself by being willing to serve when it was not convenient. Well, that truth that is so timeless and powerful for us came to a thriving, vibrant community of worshipers, surely worshiping in facilities as well as homes in many parts of Philippi by the time that Paul wrote that letter. And yet it started in the home of this, of this uh, dealer in Tyrian purple. The, the kind of purple fabrics that, uh, that Lydia was involved in are, are just quite interesting in that the ancient practices of extracting this Tyrian purple was for the luxury clothes of the Roman aristocracy. So this woman had become very successful in a highly specialized field that was marketing the clothing that usually only the wealthiest of the wealthy, the the prominent Roman citizens, could be qualified to wear. one reason for that is simply the cost of, of extracting the, um, that, that um, very, very rare oil from sea snails on the Phoenician coast. The word Phoenicia means the land of purple, and it became known because of these, these tiny little sea snails that it would take Literally, they say upwards of 100,000, I've read between 100,000 to 250,000 little mollusks just to extract enough purple dye to take care of one 
luxury garment. And Lydia was one of many who had found her livelihood in this very specialized field. The purple oil, the oil from the mollusk, was so rare that they say its worth was its weight in gold. And that because of that, it was a signal of the royalty. It was a color and a fabric made out of that color that royal, the royalty in Rome, the, the highest and most wealthy of families, yearned to have that as a, a symbol of their status, as well as many uh, in royal courts of the Byzantine Empire and many others of that era, that purple was the signal of the highest levels of royalty. The expert dye makers, like Lydia, would uh, crack the tiny shells for strands of mucus to then expose veins of that very, very precious substance into little cauldrons that would sit first in the sun for three days and then be poured into a boiling pot and often be in boiling water that had to continually be tended to with, with uh, rekindling the flames for as much as 10 days in order to get it to that very special purple luster that was exactly needed to get the right consistency of the dye for the fabrics that were in such high demand and so highly priced by the aristocracy. And it is to her that the Apostle Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy bring the good news that this Savior, this Messiah, this promised one that uh, they've learned about in, from their exposure to the prophets in the synagogues, that not only has he come, but that he was murdered by the very people who most should have welcomed him, and that he was crucified under the aegis of the Roman Empire, and that he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples by many infallible proofs, and that he is alive today, and that his living presence means the Caesar who rules over this Roman colony will bow his knee to King Jesus. Now, that simple truth so dazzled and delighted and brought to clarity for Lydia, a serious student of history and the scriptures, that she needed everything Jesus would give her. And one of the signs first was, I want to get baptized now. Don't keep me waiting. We're here at the river. Who's to keep me from getting baptized? It's quite striking that their view of coming to Christ and the symbolic immediate sign of water baptism symbolizing that, yes, I accept Christ died for me. I go under the water to symbolize that I know I've been crucified in Him and that in newness of life I come up with new life, with assurance that He lives in me and that He walks with me. That was crucial for those early believers. And after the baptism, after Lydia, and no doubt, the text doesn't tell us how many of her friends followed her, but it would be logical that uh, many did, even at that early phase. And then Lydia demonstrates her, her response to God, again, in an external expression. Just as we saw in Romans, the interior work of the Holy Spirit is doing wondrous, deep, and strong healing operations in all of our lives. But the external part of our faith is opening our hearts to others. It is being carriers of the gospel. In the case of Lydia, it was hospitality. It was opening her home. There was something instinctive early on that demonstrates what Paul later wrote to Thessalonians about every act in your life being prompted by faith. Early on, Lydia takes bold steps of faith. And God gives each of us, and God gives this church, new ways to step out by faith. Never for a moment should we be content to stay where we are or simply soak up blessings or 
idle be idle in life. Even when we're at a phase of life where there's retirement and there's other benefits of having lived a productive life, there is that not only comes exactly what Paul had in that traveling team. Wrap your arms around the rope. Let's go do this together. And so Lydia's guests in those early days of the Philippian church were at that home that had been developed because of the dealers of purple. They had large rooms where they did their work and, and they had often the, the place to gather so that people could come for the larger gatherings. And that does seem to be historically what happened. Well, I want to ask you to quickly look at your Bible and also notice the next person. Because in verse 16, there is another encounter in this groundbreaking faith that shows us, whereas Lydia may be an example of someone of means and someone of some knowledgeable experience and someone who even had a, a yearning to be a worshiper of God, though she couldn't have understood the full dimensions. Now we see, uh, by contrast, a, a, a young lady who's been co-opted by mercenary men who are taking advantage of her, her life, and she's been in, immersed into an occult practice known as divination. One of the many occult practices that are forbidden, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And here is someone who has been introduced to a mysterious and demonic power in the occult. Now, it is certainly clear that there are many parts of these kinds of practices that are just uh, a matter of sleight of hand, trickery. And yet, it's clear from Scripture in many places. Deuteronomy chapter 18 would be one primary. Isaiah chapter 8. And even in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul warns about witchcraft that comes out of the works of the flesh. There are many reminders in Scripture that anyone who is seeking to get paranormal knowledge to try to tap into the, into the impenetrable world of the dead or the unseen, that many may dabble in that in a way that they consider to be innocent fun. But the Scripture tells us again and again that what appears innocent fun in the realm of the occult opens the soul to demonic power. And Scripture refers to that in, in uh, Ephesians 4.27 when it says, Give no place to the devil. It refers to it in the letters of Jesus, the messages of Jesus to the seven churches of Asia, including Thyatira, the one where Lydia, the town Lydia had grown up in, where Jesus warns those who would lead others into immorality and dabbling in the occult. Now, we may ask why. I know as a teenager, I got drawn into an occultic experience in a very uh, unexpected way with some people that I was with. And I remember later when I came to Christ and was filled with the Holy Spirit, I was going through a kind of a time of, of is there anything I need to deal with in my past? And the Holy Spirit brought to mind these, these days that I had been thrust into uh, the whole occult realm with, with some cousins of mine. And I, though I had entered into it completely in naivete, I realized that in that situation, I had opened my soul to demonic power. Now, without being paranoid about it, the Bible gives us light on these subjects. In Isaiah chapter 8, Scripture tells us that anyone who claims to speak for the dead must be seen as you might look at a poisonous viper. And then Isaiah concludes that section by saying, Go to the Word. Go to the Scriptures. Go to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. And that astounding warning in Isaiah comes right before the great declaration that to those who live in Zebulun in the realm of Naphtali, there is going to come a great light. Galilee of the Gentiles will see the great light of the coming of Messiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Why would that all be in that section? I think one reason is because just as this 
woman who had uh, been got given a certain kind of supernatural uh, fortune-telling kind of knack. She was victimized by people who tried to use her as a tool for their own wealth development. And the sign of her um, mindset was that she followed Saul and Silas and Paul in the street. And verse 17 of Acts 16 says that as she followed them, she would cry out with a loud voice, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. What an ironic statement. We might say, well, it sounds like everything she's saying there is true. And yet it's another reminder that Satan seeks to mimic uh, the truth as closely as he can while he's sinking his daggers into someone's soul. Here was a transparent attempt at manipulation. It was an attempt at uh, gaining favor by association with the apostles. And though Paul endured it for some days, the Bible says there was a kind of a holy anger that rose when he saw what Satan had done to this woman's life, similar to what the Lord Jesus would see when he was moved with compassion for the demon possessed in his ministry. And Paul turns and says, I command you to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And immediately, this fortune-telling servant girl was completely set free. In other words, what happens in her life though the story quickly moves on to the persecution of the apostles, is that she gets the message that Jesus, the risen one, sees you in the entanglement of your soul, realizes the victimization you've experienced, sees the sin in your own heart, soul, and mind. And through the resurrection of Jesus, you are being set free from condemnation. There's no more place for dread. You can be alive in Christ. And the beauty of that church at Philippi is that she certainly, she certainly is a living object lesson of how this groundbreaking faith made it possible for people who had never tasted the goodness of God to have a congregation they could grow in. Well, the, the next thing that happens here in this whole experience is the flogging of the apostles. And of course, we know, the, we know well what happened from all those times when Paul encountered opposition because he was bringing the good news to people in a place where they so desperately needed to hear God's good news. And yet, because this fortune-telling young lady got set free and was no longer of monetary value to her owners, they themselves rose up and then stirred up the crowd against Paul. And it says in that text that the crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas after they'd been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's pretty significant to think about how difficult this experience must have been. And when we said earlier that you can bring rejoicing into the toughest circumstances of life, I'd like as we go today to think about what this meant. The Apostle Paul and his companions were suddenly, after doing the, the mighty deeds that God had done through them, and the, the grace that was flowing among people now gathering at Lydia's home and learning about the glory of our King, what thanks do they get? Well, here's just one of the torture instruments of many that were used in beating the backs of individuals like Paul and Silas and the, a, a small sampling of what they experienced I think leads us to an astounding irony in this, in this whole episode. And I think of it as the irony 
of the iron chains. Here, hereafter, bringing the good news of Christ, being persecuted, being beaten, literally beaten with rods. The irony is that they had brought someone in chains that was possessed by the enemy out of her darkness, and yet immediately physical chains are placed upon the apostles. But here's where the whole episode of groundbreaking faith breaks loose into an incredible example. If you pass over the suffering part of, of these apostles, you don't do justice to what must have been an absolutely agonizing experience. And yet there's no way in human words to fully do justice to what it would be to be beaten with rods, to be whipped on the back, one lash under the number 40, which was that traditional way that they, that they stopped the torture right at the point of its worst um, damage to the human body. All of that, and you just imagine them, they've been put in the inner cell, the jailer's been ordered to guard them carefully, they've, he's put their feet in the stocks, which historians say was not only to keep the legs uh, from moving, but often those stocks were placed at a distance that would force pain into the thighs of the legs because of the way the stocks were positioned. So there is an ongoing chronic pain. And yet, what? What happens now at midnight? <laughs> Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Groundbreaking faith means you and I, by the grace of Jesus Christ, can step out by faith every day in one way or another. And when we encounter hurt, opposition, difficulty, conflict, things we don't understand, as surely as we see a dramatic contrast in the discomfort and the sheer agony physically that these men were experiencing, and yet that stream of rejoicing that was able to come from their heart because even in their extreme discomfort, they knew this kingdom, our reigning Lord, is present with us, and the joy we have in Him is a fountain we can draw from. And God, in this case, it doesn't happen every time, but in this case, that rejoicing in the toughest of times was the occasion of a great miracle of the Lord where He caused an earthquake to shake the very foundations of that prison such that the prison doors flew open. And the jailer, fearing for his life, knowing historically that he'd paid for the position of being a jailer, they, they, they took only the, the toughest, the roughest, the most brutal for that particular task. Here's the third character touched by groundbreaking faith because here's a guy who in himself would not have had compassion on the prisoners, and yet he's brought to a point of suicidal fear. He comes running in and being so overwhelmed by this loss of the prisoners, he's about to take his own life until the apostles speak to him and say, no, no, no. This is a time of deliverance. And what comes out of his lips but that classic statement, read it aloud with me, what must I do to be saved? At the very heart of this groundbreaking faith is a fact that is true for Lydia, it's true for the fortune-telling young lady who was bought by mercenaries, and it's true of the jailer. Though their lives are all very different, what they had in common is they needed salvation. They needed the deliverance that only comes from the living God. And on an ultimate level, each of them had a yearning that they were not even aware of. How did God break them loose? How did He set the captives free? How did doors open? How did prison doors open? Men and women by faith stepped out and said, we don't know what the future holds, but we're going to carry the good news. I want to ask as we pray together for a moment that you might think of yourself today in a different way. Though you may have 
a week ahead of you that may be tightly wound up with more tasks than you can even count, though you might even question in what way you can exercise your faith, I assure you, if we could pray together for a moment and then sing to the Lord, that God equip us to be men and women of groundbreaking faith and to be a church of groundbreaking faith. We have challenges that we share together. And God puts us in situations where in the toughest of circumstances, we get to learn what it means to import praise into the prison, to birth out of our hearts songs of rejoicing to the living God and to know, oh, there are earthquake changes that He can make that are beyond our reach, and yet He often puts us right in the midst of those places where others need to hear that tender word of grace that says, yes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm going to ask you to say that with me for a moment, just those that, that phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we'll repeat the next one. Would you say that one with me? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we say it again? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul said, you will be saved in your household. And there's another. The story of God's grace continues to cascade into hearts. It might look to you at times like, it's speaking to a deaf ears when you share something about Christ from your life with someone who may be skeptical or questioning or even openly antagonistic. But never doubt the power of the living Word of God, the good news of Jesus in tiny seed form. And then above all, as we pray, I want to pray for you to be energized in faith expression this very week. Lord, I pray that every person here will be encouraged in the reality that we are being dynamically changed from glory to glory internally so that externally we can be actively, boldly bringing the life of Christ and encouragement and grace, even in a simple song, to those around us for the honor of your name. Amen.